Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Early uh, yesterday, the authorities of the Islamic Republic of Iran raised the red flag of Hussein, it's called, over the holy dome of Jamkaran Mosque. It gives the signal that a war is either coming or is underway. And then in his first public appearance since the strike that killed Major General Soleimani of Iran, President Trump rallied his evangelical base on Friday and he portrayed himself as the supporter and restorer of faith and says that God is on our side. Among the speakers supporting Trump was a granddaughter of Billy Graham and she denounced the magazine in fact that her own grandfather had started because the magazine Christianity Today had supported the impeachment of Trump and Trump of course has been worried about his evangelical supporters abandoning him especially after the editor uh, Mark Galley called for his resignation. And so in Galley's depiction, he says that it seems like evangelicals are willing to play with a stacked deck of gross immorality and ethical incompetence. And as Galley depicts it, evangelicals would say that the bent and broken character of our nation's leader doesn't really matter in the end. He says that Christianity Today has tried to understand the point of view of evangelicals and to see the prudential nature of so many political decisions, but he says there's just a failure of understanding. There seems to be a gap then between what Galley is saying and in fact the majority of evangelicals are saying, and I think that it may indicate not just two different political strategies, but two different readings of the Christian faith, maybe two different readings of the world. A Christianity that imagines the United States is a Christian nation and it's this nation that is God's true kingdom rather than the church, I think is bound to interpret the present moment and the Christian faith very differently. And in this Constantinian faith, and it is Constantinian, the fusion of state and church, Christians imagine that their allegiance to empire and their allegiance to God are one and the same. And when Paul says in Romans 13 that Christians are to subject themselves to the governing authorities, modern day evangelicals or Christians often isolate this passage from its context in Romans chapter 12, which admonishes Christians, I spoke about this last week, not to be conformed to the world, but to be conformed to Christ and the love of Christ. And the general context of scripture, really, which pictures the power of this world as under the control of evil. In opposition to this Constantinianism, I think it must be understood that God is not working out redemption through the kingdoms of this world. These kingdoms, in fact, stand under the control of the principalities and powers that are assigned to, to Satan. 
think of the circumstances in which Paul writes Romans 13, Paul is outlining the responsibility of Christians to the state. But of course, it's during a period in which Nero ruled Rome and Christians by their very existence were thought to be a danger to the empire. And so Paul provides instruction, you know, how are we to proceed in light of the fact that Jesus has just been slain by the Roman authorities, the Jewish authorities. And of course, Paul himself is about to be murdered, beheaded. And so the way of peace can be equated with the gospel, while the way of violence is that taken in Paul's picture by the enemies of the cross. And so it really should be oxymoronic to speak of a violent Christianity or of Christian warfare. Christianity, by definition, opposes violence. Every form of evil has been done, though. You know, genocide, systematic violence, often against some other, you know, the enemy, whatever that might be. And it's often been done in the name of Christ. And I think this is a blasphemy to Christianity. Christians have proven willing to go to violent extremes. In fact, very often, further than their non-Christian neighbors, in terms of violent oppression and suppression of the other. And so I think it's time that we draw a line following the teaching of the New Testament to separate out this violent form of religion. And this is Paul's purpose in Romans and in Galatians to sort out what he calls the enemies of the, the cross and those really who would reverse the meaning of the Christian faith. He says their glory is in their shame and they set their minds on earthly things. Those who bow their knee to mot or to death, the God of death, and resort to violence seem to be operating under the covenant with death as it's portrayed in the Old Testament. And this is not the faith of Jesus, it's not the faith of the crucified, but it's the faith of those who would crucify. So Christ's way is not the way of bloodshed and violence, but of bloodshed for all, so that the sacrifice of the other would cease. And taking up the cross is the overcoming of the fear of death. After all, it's the fear of death that provokes war and violence. And we relinquish this fear. We overcome the power of death, the power of violence, for the self-sacrificial power of love. And this is at the heart of the New Testament picture of salvation. It's for this purpose that Christ came into the world. It's only this kingdom that is an enduring kingdom. So America is not the city set on a hill, nor is it the new Jerusalem. This is the exclusive realm of God's people found in the body of Christ, the church. And so no nation other than the church fulfills God's eternal enduring purposes. And we might define death then as over against these purposes. We might call it the orientation to death, which is sin. And sin shows itself in nationalistic violence, in religious violence, the violence of war, the violence of sacrificial religions, the genocidal violence of tribalism. These are all manifestations of a singular structure. We can just call it sin. 
and the diagnosis of which is given to us in Christ. And so as Christians, we eschew the participation in violence, and we recognize that God is not violence, he's not the fomenter of violence, he does not promote violence. The evidence from the New Testament, as it references the Old Testament, in explaining the work of Christ, you know, he's the suffering servant, the stumbling stone, the rejected cornerstone, all imagery taken from the Old Testament, it subverts what is called the covenant with death. And this covenant with death is often directly aligned with war. Christ exposes the deification, the reification of death. He assuages the fear of death. And the practices connected with this fear, you know, the fear of the enemy, the fear of obliteration at the hands of evil men, or his fear of death, I think, covers the, the human predicament. It certainly has to do with the art of war. This is the picture in the Old Testament that other nations would accumulate chariots and horses and amass armies. And God warns Israel that this is not your security. The practices of idolatrous religion, including human sacrifice. They are the attempt to find life in death. That is, that we'll manipulate, we'll ward off death, we'll kill the other. Whether it's sacrificial religion or whether in war, it's a violent antagonistic attempt to secure ourselves. We can sum this up as kingdom building, as human kingdoms, and all they are entail the attempt to secure some form of salvation. And this misdirected effort, born out of fear, explains why the Old Testament, you know, it doesn't distinguish between the gods of the idolatrous nation and the nation themselves. That is, the nation state is a kind of religion. And the nation and all it entails can be summed up as a kind of misdirected, reified fear, a reified belief in the deity that it serves. And so it could be fertility, the sun, or just war. War is often pictured as a god. They're deified, and it's presumed that these things then hold power, the power of life and death. And religion, human religion, is bent on gaining life through death by manipulating death. And the presumption is always that we're in a kind of zero-sum game in which the worshipers are willing to trade the life, the life of some other, the life of infants, you know, in infant sacrifice, or the life of Muslims in present-day America, so as to gain life for the self. Life through human sacrifice is literally given over to death so as to secure more life. This describes the economy, I think, of the entire system, the human system. It's one in which life is spent securing it from death. This is the building of the towers at Babel. It's the security of wealth. It's the security of chariots and armies and weapons. All of life is aimed at warding off death. And this is depicted as a living death by Christ. This accounts for his picture of one attempting to save his life as in fact what is destructive of life. He who would save his life, well that's the destructive force in the world that destroys life. So when Paul or the writer of the Hebrews sums up sin as slavery to the fear of death, 
This describes and explains, I think, the orientation, the activities of the human race. The sphere of death is the impetus behind the human project. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. He's referencing two passages in the Old Testament, and he's indicating that Jesus' life and death First of all, he says it releases us from the fear of death. And the passage he's referencing in Isaiah is specifically referring to a period in which Israel is afraid that Assyria is going to come in and conquer them. They're afraid of the Assyrians and they turn to the implements of war and the prophet says, you're missing the point. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. As Israel is facing a kind of Assyrian domination and destruction, it is a kind of baptism by fire. And the one who cries out in regard to his forsakenness is made the brethren of many. That's the picture. The writer of Hebrews quotes this in Hebrews 2.13, but he's quoting then this overcoming. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Death is defeated by the one who dies the worst sort of death. And having been subjected to death, he becomes a refuge. This is what Christ does. He saves us from this controlling fear. Bondage to fear of death is broken. That's the depiction in Isaiah. That's the depiction in Psalms. And that's the understanding in Romans in Hebrews and in John. Bondage to the fear of death is broken. And this is the foundation of the children of God. This is the new foundation stone. It's the stone of stumbling, of course, for everyone else. If you look at Isaiah chapter 28, both Paul in Romans and the writer of Hebrews references Isaiah 28. And it describes the work of this new foundation as breaking the covenant with death. As human beings, we've entered into a covenant with death. It says, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge of death will not reach us when it passes by. For we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. This is just a few chapters after describing Israel being conquered by the Assyrians. And so religion and war are very much caught up in uh, understanding of Israel and this is what they're being freed from. We can say that this is the key element of the fall of human beings. It's a lie regarding death. You won't die, you'll be like God. This is what religion, human religion promises. But the end result as it's depicted in Isaiah is that you've been deceived and it's this deception that Christ exposes. In this messianic passage, it describes it this way in Isaiah 28, 17 to 18. The waters will overflow the secret place. Your covenant with death will be canceled and your pact with Sheol will not stand. That is the alternative to trusting in death and trusting in the grave and your ability to manipulate death in order to gain life is undone in Christ it says that you will no longer be put to shame. Therefore, thus says the Lord in verse 16, 
Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be put to shame, will not be disturbed. Paul references this passage in Romans 10 to the build-up to Romans 13 as part of his depiction of the cure for shame, the cure for the human predicament, being made right. God is making us right. We can't make ourselves right. And so early in this argument, if you go back, Paul goes through a picture in chapter 3 of Romans in a series of quotes from the Old Testament very similar to the Isaiah passage. And in this series of quotes, he explains that violence is a universal process enacted through a death-dealing line. Paul says in Romans 3, 9, all are under sin. All are captives to the deadly rule of sin. And then he weaves together these pictures in which death takes up its dwelling place in the organs of speech due to a lie. They function as a grave and entrap and empoison, verses 10 to 18, leading to bloodshed and violence. Why do people kill? Because they believed in a lie. What is the lie? That if they kill, they can gain life. If they do violence, they gain life. Throughout the list, the organs of speech deal in death. In 3.13, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Those who take up the lie, they literally make themselves a cadaver. They engrave upon themselves death. They imagine that death cannot touch them as they become the power of death. That's just a description of human violence. We ward off death through violence. And where death is absolute, those who deal in death, they imagine they've obtained the power of deity in Paul's description. Their feet, and he's referencing Psalms 5, it's also a reference to Isaiah 59. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There will be blood on this path of violence, as there is no fear of God before their eyes. The history of humanity is a history of warfare. In Paul's key argument, for the universal nature of sin, violence is the marker of sin in its orientation to death. And of course, subsequent to faith in Christ, Paul pictures the death-dealing organs. They're transformed once you believe in Christ. He says in Romans 10, For with the heart one believes and is made right, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's Isaiah, right? There's the problem and there's the resolution. Same resolution. The grave-like organs dealing in shame and death are transformed into instruments of peace up to and including the feet. Verse 15 of Romans 10. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Chapter 3. The feet of those who shed violence. Chapter 10, the feet of those who spread peace. That's the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. As Paul depicts it, there is the attempt to make things right apart from God. We attempt to make things right through our own power. And he equates this with a living death. And sin and death describe this 
place of rebellion, as he describes it. And yet Christ has brought his lordship to bear, even on the place of the dead, Romans 10, 7. Even in the midst of sin and death, he is the one who rescues from death, Paul says. As the writer of Hebrew puts it, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same that through death he might render powers him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Christ has freed us from the violence of humanity. He's freed us from the fear of death that would set nation against nation, tribe against tribe, people against people. Paul, in a parallel passage, depicts the slavery to fear as the life under the law. This is resolved. We've been adopted into a new family, a new tribe, a new kingdom, Romans 9.15. John depicts this family in a similar way. He says it casts out all fear. Join this new family in which fear and death and violence are not the controlling factor. The writer of Hebrews likewise draws together incorporation into the family of God. Chapter 2, verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brother. Throughout this new family, there is freedom from slavery to fear of death. How? Well, the resurrection of Jesus turns power on its head. It's not through a wielding of the sword. It's not through a power of death, but by blunting the edge of the sword, through relativizing the power of death. Jesus allows the state, after all, to do its worst to him. And he undermines the power it wields. And Christians continue to defeat the powers on the same basis as Jesus, on the same basis as the early Christians. The resurrection. The resurrection is not a one-off event in which after you know that everything's go back to normal, but rather we have the kingdoms of death, the kingdoms of violence, the kingdoms of war, and we have the resurrection kingdom of God that does not deal in death. And endless warfare is undone. The church does not do war and violence as it is the true and enduring kingdom founded upon the resurrection. It endures by placing its security, not in armies, not in military, not in violence, but in the hands of God. God secures his people in Christ, not through secure borders, not through standing armies, but through the resurrection in the face of death. This is not simply a strategy Christians exercise, you know, at the end of our lives. It's a life strategy built upon a prolonged life of civil disobedience in which the power of death exercised by the authorities is continually being overturned by the church. So when Christians take up the sword to secure themselves and their people, they have abandoned the power of resurrection for the power of death. This power of death linked to the power of Satan means that they have retreated from doing the work of God's kingdom. There is no middle way between these two things in the New Testament in which one can align himself with God's kingdom and pledge total allegiance to the kingdoms of this world. 
This split allegiance, the attempt to be a citizen of heaven while conforming to the patterns of the world, is precisely what the New Testament is resisting. John does not hesitate to dub this, this is his language, these so-called Christians who would create the possibility of doing two things at once. He says they are of the Antichrist. They are impersonators. As Christians, we are faced with a profound Constantinian form of Christianity in which the religion and the state seem to be fused. We must turn firmly away from the means and method of empire. We are not seeking power and security through tight borders, strong military, or the defeat of Islam in war. The danger is that in aligning ourselves with the oppressive powers, Christians have joined forces with the counter kingdom to the kingdom of God. The Christian agenda of peace and the agenda of empire are at cross purposes. We must not, in seeking to overcome evil, become evil ourselves. We must continue to resist the powers of death by being resistant communities built upon the presumption of resurrection. This is the apocalyptic message of Paul and the New Testament which we are proclaiming. It is an alternative kingdom built on life, built on resurrection, and death does not control it. This peaceable kingdom has open borders. All people are welcome. We pronounce that every Sunday. It's not ours to debar. It's not ours to invite. It's the Lord's Supper. The oppressed and the broken will find healing, and all are invited to find healing in Christ. And so we have found peace, and we want to share that peace with all the peoples of the earth. We cannot share that peace if we align ourselves with kingdoms of violence. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.